It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is your weekly curated roundup of the week's must-know science stories. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm Chelsea White. This week, we'll be hearing all about a pioneering trial that's used whole genome sequencing to treat very sick babies, plus the earliest evidence yet from when humans started to ride horses. We've also got a very surprising finding about matter that is missing from galaxies, plus we're taking a look at the surge in norovirus infections in England, and a new discovery about the sounds that whales make. And by happy accident, not by design, to talk about all of that, we have a lineup of international women, which is pretty fitting given it was International Women's Day this week. We'll be hearing from new scientist journalists Alexandra Thompson and Claire Wilson in London, Leah Crane in Chicago, and Alice Klein in Australia. First up, Leah, let's dive right in with your story about how the missing matter from galaxies has finally been found. So let's start with a reminder. How or why did we know that galaxies don't have anywhere near as much matter as we'd expect them to? So that's based on the ratio in the universe of normal to dark matter, which when galaxies are born, we expect them to roughly match that. Mm -hmm. But when we started being able to actually measure how much of each kind of matter was in these galaxies, they only have a tiny proportion of the regular matter, which is also called baryonic matter, that we would expect. So at the time that we measured it, we, were, we had no clue where any of it was. Since then, we found about half of it, and now there are these researchers claiming that they found the other half. So, so the obvious question then is, where did they find it? <laughs> Inside the galaxies. Um, right. <laughs> just where it belongs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right where it was missing from. Basically, they found it in the galactic halo, which is this sort of tenuous cloud of gas and a few stars in sort of a sphere around the galaxy. And we knew that there was cold gas there. We call it the cool circumgalactic medium. And this research found that there's also some hot gas coexisting with that cold gas that makes up for the rest of the missing matter. Given that we've known about this missing matter for years, why did it take so long to find it? So basically, the light that this gas sort of emits that we can see is at wavelengths that we can only see in the X-ray. And it's so faint that to find it, these researchers had to stack images of three separate galaxies together mm. to sort of build up that signal, like stacking photo negatives on top of each other. Without doing that, you can't see it at all. So then is the problem all solved now? Mystery over? 
Not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but if if we found this missing matter, that seems like it should be the end of it. Well, there's one problem, and it's kind of a big one, which is that it turns out we shouldn't even really have been thinking of this matter as missing in the first place, because simulations over the past several years have found that this matter should be missing. Young galaxies, while they should form with the right ratio of regular matter and dark matter, actually should be chucking the the regular matter out at pretty high rates because of star formation and supernovae and other things that cause these really powerful winds. So really, we don't think that matter should be in those galaxies. It should be gone. Wow, so it's starting to get quite confusing. If it's supposed to be missing, how come we've now found it? (laughs) That is why it's potentially a really big problem. Mm. Because if we've found this matter that is ostensibly missing, but really shouldn't be there at all, that means that something about our simulations is wrong. Mm. And maybe we don't really understand young galaxies as well as we thought we did. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, What would it take to confirm this then? It's going to take some doing. Um, There are some more measurements that can be taken with the telescopes we've got, but a lot of them are unlikely to be much better confirmation than these new measurements um, in the x-ray. So for really good confirmation, we have to wait for better telescopes, which obviously takes a long time. They're big, they're complicated. Some are in the works, but it might be a decade or longer before we can actually have confirmation of whether this missing or extra, depending on how you look at it, matter is really there. Now, we have a story about a clinical trial that's just wrapped up in Australia that has saved the lives or improved the health of hundreds of extremely sick babies and young children by sequencing their whole genomes. Penny spoke to our reporter in Australia, Alice Klein, about the trial. Hi, Alice. This sounds like an amazing trial. How did it get started? Yeah, so the reason for doing this trial is is basically that some babies are born very, very unwell. So they may be floppy and they can't breathe or feed on their own, or they might develop seizures in their first few weeks. And in the past, it's been really, really hard to know what's what's actually wrong with these babies And sadly, many of them have died or ended up with permanent disabilities. So since 2018, Australia has been experimenting with actually sequencing these really unwell babies' genomes to see if there might be some kind of genetic cause for their symptoms. And then if so, that, you know, if they they do find a genetic cause, then that means they can get the best treatment possible. How well did this trial work? So in total, there were 450 babies and children in the trial, and most of them, so I think about 51%, were less than one month old, so very, very newborn. And it took just 2.9 days on average to collect a little bit of their blood, sequence their whole genome, and analyse the genome and, and get a report back to their doctors. And that did actually require geneticists working around the clock for that whole mm. time. But it, it still kind of blows my mind thinking about, you know, it took over a decade to first sequence the human genome and yeah. now it can be done in you know a couple of days. So much progress in the last five, 10 years, I guess. Yeah. And so it turned out that 240 of the 450 really sick babies did have a rare genetic disease that was making them sick. And you can imagine without this sequencing, you know, we probably never would have known what was wrong with these babies because... There are over 7,000 rare genetic diseases that we know of at the moment, 
And obviously doctors can't be across all of those. So I guess it's one thing to to identify what the problem is, but if it's something really rare, there might not necessarily be a treatment for it. So did identifying the genetic cause of, of these baby symptoms help improve many of their outcomes? Yeah, so about 10% of the babies who did get a diagnosis of a rare genetic disease were able to get effective treatments that did specifically target their condition. And I actually spoke to the mother of one of these babies called River Weatherby. And I'll I'll tell you about his story because I found it really, really inspiring. Mm. So basically, when River was born and they first put him on his mum's chest, they noticed that he wasn't really breathing properly. So he ended up in intensive care and he was on a CPAP machine to help him breathe. But he just kept getting sicker and sicker and the doctors didn't really know what what was up with him. They did all these tests and... They found that he had an enlarged liver and spleen and he had quite low platelets and he he kept having to have all these blood transfusions, which is, you know, pretty, pretty rough for a newborn. Mm. And at one point his doctors actually told his parents that they, that he might not survive the night. So was it at that point then that he was offered this whole genome sequencing as part of the trial? Yeah. So that showed that River had this rare genetic disease called Gaucher disease that causes a harmful buildup of lipids in various parts of the body, including the liver and spleen. And sadly, it usually results in death before the age of two. But because in River's case, the sequencing was done so quickly, his parents were able to get the diagnosis and agree to try an experimental treatment called Ambroxol when he was just two weeks old. And amazingly, he responded almost straight away to this treatment And since then, he's been completely healthy. He's now two years old and he's doing all the things that two-year-old boys would do, um, which is pretty incredible considering that he was close to dying when he was a newborn. And this is what his mum, Cody, told me. We felt just so lucky. We just honestly felt like the luckiest parents ever. He just, yeah, just the cheekiest little boy you've ever met. and so lovable. Just He's progressing like just like a normal normal two-year-old I guess and in some things I look at him next to his sister and I actually think wow your your sister didn't do that at that age or you know like you're really yeah just defying all of the odds. Wow that's that's amazing but what about the babies then who were diagnosed with one of these rare genetic diseases that doesn't yet have a treatment? Yeah so actually surprisingly even these babies also tended to have better outcomes Because if you think about it, once you've got a specific diagnosis, it means that you can stop having all these invasive tests like liver and lung biopsies and their families don't have to take them from one specialist to another just trying to get answers about what what might be wrong. They can get the most supportive care that is available for that condition. And, you know, more and more treatments for these sorts of things are coming out, like gene therapies, um, so they may be able to get these in the future. And I guess um, it's not always a genetic condition that's to blame or we, we don't fully understand our genomes yet. So what happened in the babies that they couldn't find any particular genetic disease for? Yeah, so 240 of that 450 had a genetic disease, but the other ones they couldn't find any genetic cause. This might be because they have a genetic disease that we haven't yet characterised or, you know, some of them were found to have actually non-genetic causes for their symptoms like bacterial infections. So is this the first time that whole genome sequencing has been used to help critically ill babies? No. So over the last decade, there have been some small studies around the world that have been looking at using whole genome sequencing to, you know, work out what's wrong in sick babies. But 
they've all, well, mostly all of them have just been single children's hospitals. So this is the first time that something like this has been done on a national scale. And there's been a real buzz, hasn't there, kind of as the cost of genome sequencing has got cheaper and cheaper, that this is the kind of thing that's going to be more widely applicable. Um, How expensive was it to do? So on average, it costs 15,000 Australian dollars per child, which does sound like a lot. But Mm. interestingly, the trial was actually found to save the health system $25,000 per child on average, if you look at the net savings, because you know, if you find a diagnosis for these kids, it means that they don't have to undergo other expensive tests and often they're able to get out of intensive care a lot sooner and and that's a really expensive thing for the health system. So, yeah, it did actually save money. That's amazing. And and so do you think the results from this trial, are they they inspiring other countries to start looking at doing the same thing? Yeah, so um, I was reading that the NHS has just started offering rapid whole genome sequencing to critically ill babies across England. And I imagine, you know, as we hear more and more success stories that other countries will follow suit. And I just wanted to leave you with a quote from um, from River's mum because I think she put it best when she told me this. For us, River's like living, breathing proof that, you know, how important early diagnosis can be, especially with, you know, genetic conditions and genetic conditions such as River's where you don't have, basically don't have any time to wait. It's time to take a quick break to share some messages. First up, we wanted to tell you about an article on the future of epilepsy therapy sponsored by the biopharmaceutical firm UCB. Epileptic seizures occur when neurons in the brain fire abnormally and while anti-seizure medications are effective for many people, they don't work for everyone. Now researchers are beginning to better understand what makes neurons become hyperexcitable, raising the possibility of new forms of treatment that could modify epilepsy itself rather than just tackle the symptoms. To find out more and read this UCB-sponsored article, visit newscientist.com epilepsy. We also wanted to remind you that there are a few places left on the New Scientist Discovery Tour, Marine Ecosystems of the Azores, departing on May 13th. On this trip, you'll explore the delights of this Portuguese mid-Atlantic archipelago with marine biologists, you'll study whales and dolphins, and you'll visit basalt vineyards and volcanic lagoons. To find out more and to book your ticket, visit newscientist.com tours or click the link in our show notes. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the show. And Penny, you've got our Life Form of the Week segment this week, and it's on vocal fry. 
Yeah, so for anyone who's not familiar, vocal fry is this, can I do it, low, creaky voice <laughs> um, that's become particularly associated with uh, maybe certain celebrities or particular demographics in, in different countries. But this isn't just a sound register that humans use. And an interesting story by our reporter Corinne Wetzel this week explains that toothed whales also use these kinds of sounds too. So take a listen to this. That's so cool. What is that? That's crazy. (laughs) So that clip is a sperm whale. And what it's doing is looking for food in deep water. And sperm whales are a type of toothed whale, which is a large group of cetaceans. And it includes lots of really familiar animals like orcas and dolphins. But this particular research focused on two Atlantic bottlenose dolphins and three harbour porpoises. So what scientists in Denmark did is they studied these individuals while they were echolocating, like we just heard in that clip. So that's using loud, fast clicks to look for food, a bit like bats do. And why were the researchers looking into this? So it turns out it was a bit of a mystery how these animals were managing to make these loud clicking noises once they got into deep water, because we know in deep water, whales' lungs collapse. Previous research had shown that these clicks weren't made by air being squeezed from the animal's lungs through their voice boxes, as as would sort of happen normally. But instead, the sounds were coming from their nose. So Cohen Elements at the University of Southern Denmark and its colleagues, they wanted to figure out what was going on. And what did they find? They discovered that when the animals clicked, tissue in their noses moved. And then through studying some porpoises that had died, they then identified a narrow passage in the nose that makes these noises. So essentially, when these porpoises go deep, their lungs collapse, a small amount of air is sent into the nasal cavity, and they basically swish it back and forth in this little area. And that's what makes these loud clicks. That's so cool. When I asked our reporter, Corinne, whether this was similar to circular breathing, Mm. she said no, because the air isn't going in and out of the animal, but she likened it more to a uh, rapid internal nose fart, which I think is (laughs) a great description. (laughs) And let's make that the scientific term. Right. (laughs) But how does this relate to vocal fry? So, yeah, this is one of the cool things is that what this finding means is that these animals have at least three vocal registers uh, like humans. So there's uh, what we call the chest register in in people. That's what I'm using right now. There's also a falsetto register. And then there's also this low, creaky vocal fry register. To explain it better than me, there's a clip from the researcher Cohen Elements explaining this. When tooth whales communicate, they use either their chest voice, also called chest register or mechanism M1, or... Their falsetto register, or mechanism M2. However, when they make echolocation clicks, they use the vocal fry register, also known as creaky voice, or M0 register. <laughs> I love that creaky voice. He's great at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to imagine now how this sort of maps onto the sounds that we know that dolphins make. Yeah, because bottlenose dolphins in particular are really familiar, aren't they? All those classic noises. No need to imagine. Um, We've got a clip here of a bottlenose doing all three of those registers. Uh, So the first one's the vocal fry, then the chest voice, then the falsetto. Oh, (laughs) I love it. So what does this discovery mean more broadly for our understanding of toothed whales? 
Well, what's exciting is that now that we know dolphins, orcas and other tooth whales have at least three vocal registers, researchers can begin exploring how all these different species use these different registers and, and particularly this new creaky one for hunting, communication and so on. And just to say thanks to the researchers for those audio clips, the sperm whale recording was courtesy of Peter T. Madsen at Aarhus University. We heard from Cohen Elemans of the University of Southern Denmark describing those three vocal registers and the recordings of the bottlenose dolphin sounds come courtesy of both him and Peter Madsen. Next, we're going to take a look at norovirus, also known as winter vomiting bug, which is a viral infection that spreads easily and causes diarrhoea and vomiting. Alex, this virus is a big issue in parts of the UK right now. Yes, so England's reported cases are at their highest level in more than a decade. And the most recent figures we have show that in mid-February, there were 24% more lab-confirmed cases in England this winter compared with the five-year average from before COVID-19 emerged. That's concerning. Do we know Mm. why it's happening? Well, cases are much higher than the five-year pre-pandemic average, but they're also higher than during the height of the pandemic, which is no great surprise due to social distancing measures. But immunity to norovirus is pretty short-lived, as little as a few months or a year or two at most. So any immunity people had pre-pandemic will have waned. So that's probably contributing to the high case numbers. And outside of England, Scotland's seen a similar situation with norovirus cases, but Wales and Northern Ireland aren't. And we're not sure why, but it's probably just due to differences in testing and reporting of cases. Norovirus is typically a seasonal winter infection. And and despite the snow that we've had this week, the UK is on the cusp of spring. Are norovirus outbreaks being pushed back to occur later in winter than they used to? If you look at norovirus outbreaks over the past 10 winters, the peaks and troughs of infection numbers have varied. They move forwards and backwards over time. Modelling suggests there's generally two peaks per winter and cases did rise in England around Christmas, but it was a relatively small peak. One of the researchers we spoke to said that he doesn't think this winter's peak is actually particularly late. And who is most affected by norovirus? Who should be sort of concerned? Well, if you look at the most recent data, it's mainly people over 65 who are getting infected, which is in line with statistics from previous outbreaks. But some research suggests that most norovirus cases actually occur in children. They're just not detected and recorded because children are much less likely to become seriously ill with norovirus. So is there anything that we can do to reduce our risk of catching or spreading it? Yes, the virus spreads very easily through close contact, touching contaminated surfaces and eating food that's been prepared by an infected person. So good hand washing practices will help to stop the virus spreading. It is worth noting that alcohol hand gels don't work against the norovirus. And the NHS, sorry, the National Health Service advises that people who've been ill don't return to school or work until they've gone at least two days without vomiting or having diarrhoea, which are the the classic symptoms of norovirus. If you go back earlier, you'll be mixing with people when you're at your most infectious. Next up, Claire, you've been writing about the first people to ride horses, or I guess we should say the first known people to ride horses. Um, So I haven't thought about this before. How far back are we talking about? When did people start riding horses? Mm, Well, we could be looking at about 5,000 years ago. This concerns a tribe that we call the Yamnaya people or Yamnaya. (laughs) So these were 
nomadic herders who originated from a region that kind of roughly correlates with present-day Ukraine. The Yamnaya are very interesting because um, around that time, they seem to have really expanded throughout Europe, including pushing into Britain. So they might have been some of our ancestors. So suddenly, am I right in thinking their genetics just kind of appeared all over Europe at this time, suggesting there was this sort of expansion? Yes. And we don't, yeah. And we don't really know if, you know, it was a kind of a warlike invasion or if they just outcompeted the people who were already there. But they certainly seem to have kind of replaced the people who were there. Anyway, we already knew that they had horses as well mm. as cattle and sheep because we found you know, many horse bones among their archaeological remains. But they could have been keeping horses for their meat and their milk. Um, we have found traces of horse milk on their pottery shards. Mm. So it's was still a big question. When did they start riding horses? So what's the new evidence now? Mm, well, these researchers who are at the University of Helsinki, they've been looking at the skeletal remains found in Yamnaya graves. Now, we already thought that if you're a you know a very long-term heavy horse rider, it can leave certain traces on your bones, particularly on the bones of your thighs and your spine. Mm. So the team have counted how many of these signs they could see on uh, more than about 200 skeletons found in graves. And they found many of these signs altogether on nine individuals who lived between about four and a half thousand and five thousand years ago. So we could be looking at this. I mean, this could be the first evidence of human horse riding. Wow. I I guess I'd never thought that horse riding could change your bones. Um, I mean, I I guess it would change your muscle strength. But what are we talking here? Were they more sort of bow-legged from being... (laughs) straddling a horse all day uh no that's not that's not it um but of course the muscles are connected to bones Mm. and if you have muscle pulling on bone via ligaments so muscles connect to ligaments which connect to bones so if you have muscles you know pulling on bones more in a certain place then that patch of bone becomes um becomes more prominent becomes bigger and a bit rougher too so that it can kind of cope with the force better Right, I see. And you mentioned the spine also. So so how would riding a horse leave marks on the spine? Yes, that's a bit different. So it's all that jogging up and down, uh, mm. the vertical motion. So I don't ride myself, but apparently there's a lot of up and down. And that wears away the bone on the, the kind of the top and the bottom surfaces of the vertebrae in the spine in a different way to the pressures caused by walking or running. So, so that they're more horizontal or mixed forces and remember the first horse riders probably had um quite a rough time of it and so they you know they wouldn't have had saddles or stirrups I must say I've only ridden a horse once and even with (laughs) saddles and stirrups it was nowhere near as comfortable as it looks like you know when you watch a period (laughs) drama on tv (laughs) could you imagine it kind of grinding away at your spine (laughs) I definitely could yeah um sobering thought for anyone who's a regular horse rider (laughs) So does this, um, how definitive is this? Are we now starting to think, okay, horses were key to the Yamnaya sweeping through Europe? It might be a bit soon to start kind of rewriting history books, um, as is always the way in science. There are people who disagree. Um, You can look at other kinds of evidence for horse riding, uh, things like uh, remains of, of things that look like they might have been bridles. 
And they don't turn up in the archaeological record until about a thousand years later. So um, archaeologists are still having a good old row about it all. That's all for this week. Thanks to all our guests and thanks to you for listening. And one more thing to note before we go, the next New Scientist event takes place online on April 4th at 6 p.m. British Standard Time and 1 p.m. Eastern. It's called Fermilab, Solving the Mysteries of Matter and Energy, Space and Time. And you'll hear all about this institution's fascinating research from Fermilab senior scientist Don Lincoln. Our early bird ticket offer ends on Sunday, March 12th, so visit newscientist.com slash Fermilab now. And of course, don't forget to subscribe or follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss a show. And do recommend us to anyone and everyone you know. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.